Lord, we thank you that we could come here this morning in your house to, to hear your word read, to, to hear your word sung, and now to hear your word preached. But Lord, you know that the preacher is weak, and so we pray that your spirit would be the one that speaks to us this morning. God, that you would give us ears to hear the words of the living God and take the heart of the things that are spoken by faith to trust you, to walk in you, Lord, to receive the blessings that come to us only through you. It is in Christ's name that we pray these things. Amen. Well, I'm getting to be an old man each and every day. It seems like I get older, but I learn a few things. And one of the things that I've learned is, is that you can learn a lot about life from watching babies and little kids. You know, have you ever done that? I mean, especially if you take the time to observe, you know, how they process the things that they encounter in their lives, right? I mean, have you ever seen a little baby discover their hands and particularly their fingers? You know, they're just like, wow, like, what is that? That is so cool. I wonder what's making those things move. You know, you just, there's just an amazement there. Or maybe little kids that, will blurt out things about other people that we would never dream of saying because they're not socially acceptable. We might be thinking them, but we're not saying them. You know, but little kids will just blurt it all out. And they don't mean to be cruel about the things that they say. They're just learning how to communicate and trying to, to understand all that. So, you know, to a kid or to a baby, baby, everything is just so new. It's so fresh. And it's always a learning experience. And if you stop and think about it, brothers and sisters, that's how God created us. That's how God created us. He, he wants us to continually be learners and to understand the surroundings that we have. But too often, we as adults, we get, we're beyond that. We're, uh, you know, we're getting older. We think we know just enough in life that we got this. And so we, we begin to just sort of live life on autopilot sometimes without even thinking about our daily routine and the things that we do. And we don't really process those things, you know, in terms of uh, who God is and what he has revealed to us in his word. But we have, we're meant never to outgrow God's need of his revelation in our lives and what we see here in the book of Ecclesiastes is the preacher or Koheleth or, or Solomon. And he takes time to observe life as an adult. You know, he challenges us to think about why we do what we do and what we hope to get out of it. In our, and in our passage today, he challenges us to think about this thing we call the rat race. And particularly our toil, our work here upon this earth. Now for you kids... I know you don't have a job, or at least you don't get paid. You do have a job, and that's to go to school, right, and to learn. So when I talk today about work, kids, I want you to be thinking about school, okay, because that's sort of your work. But, but Solomon wants to challenge us about our, our attitudes and our motivation that we have towards our work, and particularly about success. What does that success look like? So so let's look at this this morning. Now, the preacher has already told us that work is a gift from God. He's, he mentioned that back in chapter 2. We saw it again in chapter 3, verse 22. 
But like all of God's blessings, we can, we can distort that. We can distort his wonderful gifts. And so this morning, I want us to look at some of the, the heartache that we encounter sometimes even in our work that Solomon reveals to us. And the first thing he wants us to see is that we have heartache as we seek to have what other people have. As we seek to have what other people have. And so I want us to look at three subpoints under this, the first of which is envy that we see in, in verse 4. He talks about how we are oftentimes motivated by envy, that is, a desire to have what other people have. But not only that, it's not just a desire to have what other people have, but it's also a discontentment with what God has already given us. He says in verse 4, Then I saw that all toil and all skill in work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. This also is vanity and a striving after the wind. Now, envy is not the only reason that, that people work, of course. And if we took this verse by itself, it might even seem sort of like an exaggeration. And you might want to say, now, wait a minute, I don't work out of envy. But the preacher still does have a point that one of the reasons that we work so hard is to get what other people have. Now, think about that with, with Adam and Eve. They had everything, and I mean everything. Their, their surroundings were, were perfection. God had given them the food that they needed to eat. They had a relationship with God, a relationship with, with each other. And Satan enters into that and, and challenges them to, to think that maybe God is holding back on them. And ever since then, humanity has wrestled with being content with what the Lord has, has given to us. How easy it is for us to compare our lives with those that we know. And, and young people, kids, maybe you struggle with this in school. You work hard at school because you want to be the best. You know, you, you want to sort of stand out. You want to get really good grades. You want to be acknowledged. And so you sort of compare yourself with others and to try to gauge exactly how it is that you're doing. You're not really looking at your own abilities and what you're capable of doing. Instead, you're comparing yourself with others. Or it may be that maybe something as simple as uh, the fact that we may have a, a cell phone that is five generations old. Can you imagine that? A cell phone that's five years old? You know, and it's so old and you're looking at that and, and you know, it still works just fine and everything, but, but you look at all the latest phones and everybody's like, oh, hey, look what I got. I got the new eye, whatever. And, you know, they're sort of showing you all the little gadgets and, you know, you're looking at your phone and you're thinking, well, you know, my phone does work. It is slow. It doesn't have much capability. It doesn't have that. And you're beginning to think, huh, maybe I need to get a new cell phone. And maybe you were fine before that. Now, it's not like you're going to go out and buy the latest and greatest. You're not so foolish as to do that. But you're thinking, maybe I should just even upgrade a couple of generations. That whole idea of envy is so easily stirred in our hearts. So rather than simply having joy in the work that the Lord has given us, Oftentimes we are compelled to work to get that which our hearts, which we set our hearts upon, that which we see that others have that, that we don't. Now, the text doesn't say this, but, you know, envy is one of those things that sort of isolates us from one another. Rather than rejoicing with those who rejoice because the Lord has blessed them in a certain way, envy turns our focus upon who? Me. 
It turns it upon what I want and what I need to do to go about getting what it is that I think that I need. And rather than delighting in the blessings that the Lord has given to others around us and also to us as well. So we see, you know, even within that uh, heartache of uh, seeking to have what others want, that whole idea of envy. But then in verse 5, he talks about those who actually take a very different approach maybe to the rat race. They seek to escape the rat race. And in verse 5, the fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. So rather than joining into the rat race, some people want to drop out altogether. And, you know, they know that they can't keep up with the Joneses, and so they don't even try. And all they do is fold their hands. Now, Solomon's talked about this in other places as well. Proverbs chapter 6. I mean, there's a lot of places in Proverbs where he talks about it, but I'll just select one. Proverbs 6, 9 through 11. He says, how long will you lie there, O sluggard? Now, kids, a sluggard is, is a lazy person, okay? Oh, sluggard, when will you arise from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come upon you like a robber and want like an armed man. So, Have you ever known somebody who works twice, at, twice as hard at not working um, as if it would be the, if they just did their job. I mean, you look at them and you think, you know, if you'd just done your job, you would have worked half as much as you'd worked in trying not to do your job. You know, well, that's the kind of person that, that Solomon is talking about here. Or, or kids, have you ever been tempted to goof off when your parents have given you chores and they maybe told you to go get your laundry and bring it down to the laundry room and your mother goes upstairs or, in, you know, wherever you are and you're just sort of wandering around. And they're like, well, did I not tell you to get your laundry? And you're like, well, yeah, I was on the way to do that. And then I saw this. And then I thought about this. And, you know, and next thing you know, you're in a totally different room. And your laundry is maybe even a whole different floor of the house than you are. Or, or maybe it's come time to do your homework. And you just, you're just like, I can't do this. And you don't even try. You just give up. You just say, I can't do this. And you just give up. But that's what Solomon's talking about here. But this approach to life turns out to be a steeply self-destructive attitude. As the preacher describes, he, as he describes it, the fool eats what he has until he has nothing left. I like what one commentator said. He said, there is a, a deeper damage than the wasting of capital, that is of money. He said, his idleness eats away not only what he has, but what he is. Have you ever thought about that? A person who's lazy, a person who doesn't work, actually there's an eroding away, not just of what they have, but who they are as a, an individual, eroding his self-control, his grasp of reality, his capacity for care, and in the end, his self-respect. Don't you know people like that? That, you know, you talk to them and they're just lazy and you're like, come on, let's, let's do this. And they're like, yeah, I don't care. They're just sort of apathetic. They don't, they don't care, and they don't respect people around them. And, and honestly, when you look at them, they don't even respect themselves as well. And I think that's the danger you know, that we oftentimes see in, in the welfare system of our country. I think there is good intent behind that program to help those that are, are suffering and, and having difficulty. But oftentimes, it actually creates this kind of a self-loathing towards uh, themselves. But anyway... 
So, so we see here really two equal and opposite errors that, that Solomon's talking about. Uh, as toil can be all-consuming, so laziness or idleness is self-destructive. Do one of these seem, errors seem to tempt you more than another? Maybe you're tempted to, to envy what other people have and then you wear yourself out trying to get it. Or maybe you think you're above all that and, and so you just sort of have a laid back, maybe even a negative attitude towards work and you seek to avoid that altogether. But Solomon also talks about another thing in verse 6, not only envy and escape, but also enjoyment too as well. He says in verse 6, he gets good advice to those that are wrestling with these things. He says, better is a handful of quietness than two handfuls of toil and striving after the wind. So the picture that he has here is of a person who's reaching out with both their hands. Okay, it's the, the, the Hebrew word is the idea of the hands up. Okay, just sort of trying to grab as much as they can and getting more and more and more. But Solomon contrasts that, that effort, that, that toil, that striving, as he lists here, with what? Quietness. He says that rather than working so hard with both hands to get all that your heart says that you need, be content instead with just one handful of quietness. In other words, he's saying less is more. You know, we think the only way we're going to be satisfied, the only way we're going to sort of take care of that ache in our heart is if we get more. But he says, actually, we need less. The wise person is working hard enough to have a decent handful of what he needs in life, but that's enough for him. He doesn't keep demanding more and more, but accepts what God has given to him. In other words, he has learned to be what? Content. So there's a handful of work and a handful of quietness, a handful of rest. There's a balance to such a life. You know, the quiet person is like Christ. You know, we can see from Christ's life, his life is more than just a model for us, but it is also an example of what it looks like to live in the kingdom of God. And Jesus didn't fold his hands in idleness, neither did he envy what other people had, if they had more possessions than him, which weren't a lot of people. He was pretty poor. But he simply worked hard in the calling that God had given him, the calling to seek and to save lost sinners and as he worked he trusted the father to give him all that he need he was content with the basic things of life and Jesus invites us to live the same way this way that we read here in Ecclesiastes where we work hard but we be content with what we have I don't know if you see or not here what Koheleth is doing but he's addressing more than just the actions of, his, of our work and our toil and our labor. He's addressing the attitude of our hearts. You see, oftentimes our hearts drive us for more things. Uh, it's just part of that fallen condition. But he says, in Christ you can resist that. In Christ you can find your satisfaction in the goodness of the Lord. It sort of reminds me, of a little girl who misquoted Psalm 23. And actually, when she did, she made it better. Uh, Psalm 23 says, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Okay, what she said was, The Lord is my shepherd, that's all I want. 
Okay. Now, I'm not saying she improved on the Word of God, but I'm just saying it does drive home a point. And most of us want so many other things in life that it's hard for us to say that. But whether Jesus is all we want or not, the truth is Jesus is all we need. And that's what Solomon wants us to see here. But he also talks about the, the, the headaches of having power and influence. If you look down at the end of the chapter, at verses 13 through 16, the, the, the preacher says, Better was a poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king who no longer knew how to take advice. For he went from prison to the throne, uh, though in his own kingdom he had be, been born poor. I saw all the living who move about under the sun along with that youth who was to stand in the king's place. There was no end to all the people, all of whom he has led. Yet those who come later will not rejoice in him. Surely this also is vanity and a striving after the wind. Now this is sort of a little bit of a difficult text to, to understand. But I, I think is, is what he's trying to say is, is that first of all there was an, a king, an old king. Uh, but unfortunately he was a foolish king. At one time in his life, he listened to the, his counselors, but he got to a point where he no longer did that. But then there was a second king who came, and he sort of lived the American dream. And what I mean from that is he went from rags to riches. He was born poor in the kingdom, but he had become uh, the king of, of the land. And not only that, but the people supported him. There were many that were around him, but soon he was forgotten. And he just, Solomon is reminding us that, you know, as we seek power and influence, that even with that, there are many headaches. One is, is that fame is fleeting. You know, even the young king who went from rags to riches was eventually forgotten. And, and his glory just sort of faded away. In the end, he was expendable. The, the, the other lesson, though, we see is that the first king, where he listened to his advisors, and then he, he got to the point where he would only listen to his own counsel. In other words, he became so proud and so sure of his own decisions that uh, he didn't have any use for anyone else. What's the phrase that, that we oftentimes use? Absolute power corrupts absolutely, doesn't it? It, it, it corrupts definitely and fully. And one of the heartaches of life when we seek power and influence um, uh, is that it might be to our own detriment. Often we're tempted to look for the approval and acceptance from others. We might want others to see us as knowledgeable or funny. Or maybe even we want people to see us as uh, something much more noble. Maybe a servant. Maybe someone who cares about other people. Someone who is reaching out and always helping others. But the approval of people is fleeting and it soon passes away. Or worse yet, we get the approval of other people and it goes to our heads. And we begin to think more highly of ourselves than we ought. But the wisest Christians are those who listen to counsel and if necessary, even accept correction. So the best way uh, to gain this wisdom is by turning to Christ only, who is our king forever. The third thing I want us to see, and it's the middle section of this text in verses uh, 7 through 12, is, is the headache as we seek to have it all. 
as we seek to, to uh, become wealthier and richer and, and have it all. He says in, in verses 7 and 8, Again, I saw vanity under the sun, one person who has no other, either son or brother, yet there is no end to his toil, and his eyes are never satisfied with riches, so that he never asks, For whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This also is vanity and an unhappy business. Well, so the preacher here turns to tell us a story about a sad individual who, who lives and works alone. There seems to be no end, as a matter of fact, to this man's work. Day after day, he keeps working from, from dawn until dark. You know, how long is this work week? I don't know, 60 hours, 70 hours, 80 hours? I don't know. But he's never satisfied, we see here. He always wants more. But for what purpose is he doing this? He doesn't know. Solomon said he doesn't even take the time to stop and to think about why it is that he does what he does. No matter what he gained, the man had no one to share it with. He was all alone. So apparently the man didn't even take the time to stop and to think about this. So he's making this costly sacrifice for what? Just to build up his bank account, yet never even considering whether it was worth it or not. But Solomon examines this and he says, I'll answer that question for you. It's not worth it. The man's sacrifices are worthless. His possessions will never satisfy his soul. One day he will die. And as we read in other places in Ecclesiastes, all his things will go to someone else and you never know how they're going to use them. What the preacher uh, saw is a warning for all of us against greed and selfishness and sinful addiction to work that results, as we see here in this text, in isolation. And, and how often we see those, and maybe we are those, that we work so hard to provide for our family. And some that will work so hard for their family that they actually have no time for their families. And they're really no different. Even though they have families, they're really no different than this man in verse 7 and 8. They are just as isolated. I, I read the story of a man who had worked and worked and worked and worked to give his family everything. And he worked himself, everybody around him said he, he worked himself literally into the grave. So he died and uh, the, his widow was uh, at the nursing home, or nursing home, funeral home, and uh, somebody came up to her and said, you know, I'm so sorry, I'm sure you're going to miss him. And the widow looked at this person and says, I already have. I already have. He was never around. And so she was already lonely and she missed him. Because when we give ourselves to our work, it causes us to be isolated. But Solomon continues past the misery of this kind of solitude to talk about the prophets of companionship. Now, I hear, I've, you know, I've, I've heard this passage used a lot at weddings. You know, people oftentimes turn to this two that work together. It's that the marriage relationship. And I would suggest to you that's not a bad application. But really, in the context of this, he's talking about something way more than marriage. 
And so the preacher gives us a number of reasons why uh, partnership or, or relationship is better than personal isolation. And, and he says here in verse 9 that two are better than one because they're more productive in their work. You know, when, when people work together, it seems to go better. They accomplish more than twice as much as either one would have accomplished alone. And I've seen this again and again. And this is one reason I love to work together in teams. Because I think that's the way that God has created us. To work together. Uh, to, because what I don't think of, the other person will think of and, and vice versa. But he also talks about, in verse 10, that two are also better than one because they can help one another in times of trouble. Now, this verse sort of reminds me of a TV commercial that was on years ago. I think it was for one of those panic button things for the elderly. Like if they, you know, get in trouble, they can push a panic button and it will call help. And, and it shows this uh, older woman who has an accident in her home. And she says, I've fallen and I can't get up. But it's okay because she has the button that she can push and help will come. And that's what the commercial was. But it, it really sort of captures this idea that sometimes... This happens in life, you know, maybe not literally we don't fall down, but metaphorically we do. We get knocked down by life's trials and troubles and we try uh, something, maybe we end up failing, uh, maybe relationships get broken and financial difficulties make us feel desperate, and, and, uh, or maybe we're struggling with sin. And if we try to walk through that alone, it is so difficult and almost impossible one of the things I uh, have learned as a pastor is I will oftentimes have people come to me um, who have had marital problems. And maybe they have had marital problems for five years or ten years. And they come to me and they say, Preacher, we're going to come to you and see if you can help us. And if you can't, we're going to get a divorce. And when they come... They come with five years or ten years of hurt and pain and anxiety. And so as we sit down and we begin to sort of unravel the things that are there in their lives, it's really challenging to deal with those things because of all the pain and the hurt and the wounding that has happened. Well, what they've tried to do for ten years is self-medicate. They've tried to help themselves and try to fix their problems. And it just reminds me as I think about that, you know, what would have happened if 10 years ago, when all of this was starting, if somebody in the church had said, Sally, how are you doing today? And she'd say, fine. Say, really? Are you, are you sure you're doing okay? And they maybe push a little bit more and find out that actually she and her husband are beginning to have some trouble. And for that person to reach into their lives and to seek to come and to help them. Or what would have it been like if Sally would have come and said, hey, we're struggling in our marriage. Could you help us? And to do that 10 years ago. And I just think that that's what Solomon is talking about here. That when, you know, it's better to have those around us that come and, and to help us. And, and to understand that we are not alone, to have a brother or sister there to help us, to give us encouragement, to, to help us to, to see our own hearts and to help us out. Also, he says in verse 11 that two are better than one because they can keep each other warm. Now, what the preacher has in mind here, I would suggest, is not a husband and wife. That's oftentimes applied that way. 
but rather he's most likely talking about those who traveled. Uh, many would travel in the wilderness and the desert nights would get very cold. And uh, if a pilgrim was walking alone, he could get very cold in the wilderness. But if he had a companion, they could sleep back to back and share each other's body heat and stay warm. Um, and, and this is not just good advice for your physical comfort, but even for your soul as well. There is spiritual warmth in going through life with other believers. It's easy to grow cold in our Christian walk and maybe even numb to the ways of, of God and eventually to freeze a, a spiritual death, if I could use this analogy here. But when we're growing cold, how great is it when we have the heat of another Christian that can come and can warm us up, one that would pursue us to make sure we're okay? What would it be like to have the prayer of a deacon or an elder who loved us and just said, I'm praying for you and I, and I care for you? Or, or a verse that a friend texts you just to let you know that God has not forgotten you in your struggle. Or an exhortation maybe from a brother who loves you enough that's willing to uh, offend you by coming to you and, and lovingly challenge your heart back to God. Those friends are few and far between oftentimes. But these are some of the sparks that God uses to keep the fire burning in our souls. And then finally another reason he gives us is in verse 12. And that is that two are better than one because they can protect one another. In other words, there's safety in, in numbers. We know that if you're alone and you're attacked, it's much harder to fight somebody off than if there's two. But uh, two really are better than one. But for us to have this advantage, we need to live in close fellowship with God and with one another. You know, it's Sunday mornings is, is not enough. And, uh, and that's why it's important that we are, are praying for one another. We are communicating with one another. One of the things that, uh, um, that warms my heart every time I hear it is in when my wife's phone dings. And it's the ladies in our church that are texting each other. Okay, they got this uh, network that's going that this thing's hot. I'll tell you, some days it's like ding, 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 ding. I feel like we won the lottery or something like that because the ladies are just going back and forth and communicating. And I just say, praise God that our ladies are so connected. But that's exactly the kind of picture that we're talking about here, that there's that sense of relationship. And I think it's important for us to ask ourselves, how are we doing in that? Are we loners? Are we people who say, I can do it myself and maybe I'll just check in with the body of Christ periodically? Or are we people who have partners in ministry? Are, are you in relationships that are strong enough to help you to grow in Jesus Christ? If you're married, are you spending time with your spouse in, in the word and in prayer? If, if you're living with other Christians, are you speaking to one another about spiritual things? Do you belong to a small group Bible study? Is, is anyone holding you accountable in your most vulnerable areas of temptation? Does anyone in the world know you well enough to, to have your back in prayer in those things that may cause you to fall and there would be difficulty? You see, the children of God were never designed to live alone, but always with the help and the support of brothers and sisters in Christ. Now, one other thing I want to mention here, too, is at the end of verse 12, uh, he talks about uh, a threefold cord is not quickly broken. 
I'll tell you what, if you want to know uh, a lot of different interpretations, just pull out a number of commentaries and read what they mean. It's amazing. Some people want to apply this only to marriage, and so they think the third chord is children. That it's a husband and wife are the first two chords, and the third chord is the child. Some want to apply that to Christ. Some, you know, there's just any number of, of uh, explanations for that. And the r reality is that Solomon doesn't really answer that for us here to tell us what that is, other than to say that we ought not to be alone, that we are called to others. But I would say this, that uh, we also need to understand that, that Christ is our friend and that, that, that he refers to us. He, he's a friend of sinners the Bible talks about. And Jesus says that we are not simply his servants, but we are his friends. And, and that may sound odd when you think of the God of the universe, but we are to find the greatest reward when we work with our partner in him. Now, that doesn't mean that do I have earthly brothers and sisters who help me or do I have a heavenly father and a, a heavenly brother and the spirit of God that helps me. It's both for us as Christians. And God calls us uh, to rely upon him and to trust him. He is uh, our most needed friend. And so my question to you this morning is, brothers and sisters, are you trusting in him? The toil and the work that you do on this earth is it a toil and a work that moves you towards other people or towards isolation from other people? And Solomon is warning us against the heartache of those things that isolate us from others. Uh, but we know that in Christ, we are not isolated. We're not, he not only has given us a relationship with him to enjoy, where he is closer than a brother, where he hems us in before and behind in all that we do in our life, but he has also made us part of the church that we could enjoy the human relationships as well. So let us rejoice this morning and understand that two really are better than one when one of the two is the best one of all, our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Please bow with me if you would. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have given us work to do. Uh, you tell us the importance of, of our work and, and we even realize it before the fall that you gave Adam and Eve work to do. And so we, we thank you for this blessing. But Lord, you know our hearts and you know our temptations that we can have to uh, turn our work into something to satisfy ourselves rather than glorying in what you have given to us. And so, Lord, I pray that you would speak to our hearts this morning. But, Lord, even more so that you would call us to, to trust in you. Lord, to, to resist those temptations, to seek what other people have. God, to, 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 to try to have it all, to try to seek uh, uh, influence and, and power. Lord, instead, I pray that we would uh, work in a balanced way uh, to be content, Lord, with those things that you have given to us and when we feel that nagging ache in our soul to want to have more to somehow if I could just get and then we fill in the blank then I would be happy Lord help us to resist that to understand that that comes straight from hell and it smells like smoke Lord you have not created us to be yearning for the next thing like a like a donkey that has a carrot on a stick and is chasing after that and going nowhere 
Lord, instead, help us to find true contentment in you. Lord, I pray for those that are here today that have worked hard and are weary and are resting. We pray that you would give them peace. Lord, I pray for those that are here today that have been a slacker, that have, maybe it's a, a, maybe it's a kid that's not been applying himself in school. And he can do more, but he just doesn't want to do that. May he see the benefit, Lord, of that which you've called him or her to do uh, and to understand the blessing it is to work unto the Lord. And God, we pray all these things. And just help us, Lord, in our relationships with one another. Uh, God, draw us ever closer to one another. And uh, pray that we would, as, as Paul says to the church, I know that you love one another. I pray that you would love each other more. That's what I pray for our congregation. We thank you, Lord, and we pray these things in your name. Amen.